kind of people are we? Now, some people ask that question in terms of what kind of people are we as Americans or some other country. Some people ask that question as I am today, what kind of people are we as followers of Jesus? I suppose I could be a little bit more specific and say, what kind of person are you? And that's the challenge today. We're going to talk about a story that Jesus told, and it really, in ways we sometimes don't think about, helps us understand what kind of people we are, but even more, what kind of people God wants us to be. So think about that question, what kind of people are we? What kind of person are you? Now, I want to quickly say that I think since you're listening to this program, you're the kind of person that is a good judge of programs. Well, I'm not trying to be silly here. I'm trying to say, you know, the fact that you're interested enough to stretch in God's direction is a good sign. And I want us together today to stretch in God's direction. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I want to welcome you to our program, Faith Is. It's the place we do stretch each other, and we don't want to stretch each other to the breaking point, but we do want to grow in God's direction. We want to be the kind of people He's called us to be because we want to have the kind of influence in the world that He needs us to have. So we're trying to be the kind of people He wants us to be, and we're stretching in His direction, and we're doing that by developing faith, because here we believe faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I want you to think about that a little bit. Do you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Well, I think most of us would be pretty quick to say, well, we're not quite to the absolute confidence, but we're growing in our confidence, and that's the idea. You know, the, the goal of faith is to continue to grow and to deepen and strengthen and stretch our understanding so that we have more and more confidence in God. And I'm pretty sure the longer you live and the more you stretch in God's direction, the more you will realize two things. Yes, your confidence has increased, and yes, you still have some development to do. Well, that's okay. Uh, the, important, the important thing is that we don't get stuck and stale, and we want to develop that kind of confidence in God together, and that's why we stretch each other. As I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church full of real people. We have our ups and downs and our ins and outs. We have our agreements and our disagreements, but we are united in having a commitment to follow in the way God leads us to go. And that's what we want to do together here today. And I want to thank the church because they allow us this opportunity to do this, the time to do it, and the resources to help support it. And we hope you find it helpful. We don't do this just to say we do it. That would be the last reason we would do it. We do it because we want to help you. And we hope it encourages you. And we hope it stretches you. And sometimes maybe I hope a little bit that you get just a little irritated because maybe it's the voice of God you hear, because you really don't need to hear what I say. You need to hear what he has to say. And if I can help that, that's what he expects me to do. So let's talk. We're going to get into this idea of what kind of people are we. But before that, I was thinking, and I really thought about this, seems to me, during church on Sunday. I was talking to our congregation about some principles and some important things related to our nation, the United States of America. And that came up in my thinking and, and got our attention because we celebrated 
our independence on July 4th. And maybe you had a picnic, maybe you saw fireworks, maybe you had to work. But in either case, any case, we all recognize that it was a special day for celebration. We had a special picnic every year when I was a kid. I will never forget July 4th picnics with our church. It was just special. It doesn't happen today. It can't happen today. Things have changed. Access to the place we had it has changed. But, but we remember the importance of our independence. And one of the things that I want us to think about today is that independence and some of the principles involved in, in our form of government. What makes us Americans is a lot the form of government that was established way back in 1776 and the years following with the establishment of the Constitution. But I want to ask you another question. When was the last time you read the Declaration of Independence? Now, this is not to, to make you embarrassed or concerned as much as to say, you know, we really need to read the Declaration of Independence. I would not be surprised, so don't, don't be concerned. I mean, you can always fix this. I would not be surprised that a whole lot of people listening today have never read the Declaration of Independence. And I want to encourage you to do that. It's very important. It's one of three great charters of freedom in this nation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are our three great charters of freedom in the United States. And I want to encourage you to read the Declaration of Independence. It's very important because it lays out the reason that our country's founders declared independence as a nation. Now, if you can't find it in yourself to get through the whole declaration, and I understand parts of it are more tedious than others, then, then read the first part. That's really important. And if you can't read all of the first part, at least read the parts that I'm going to have us think about right now. From the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, they're as obvious as plain as the nose on our face. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Everybody knows them, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. Now, notice that it says, this is very obvious stuff we're stating here, and that things that we're going to talk about came to us from God, endowed by their creator. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So right off the bat, we know something important about our understanding of what it means to be a person in America. It means that we have certain rights that no one can take away because those rights were given to us by our creator, by God. Very important for us to realize that our rights come from God. They don't come from government. Too many people think the government in their kindness, can I say that with tongue in cheek, give us rights. The government does not give us rights. Our rights come from God. That's a very foundational understanding for what it means to be an American and what it means to live under our form of government. So it's self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not all of them. That's a descriptive phrase to refer to a couple of them so that it lays a foundation. 
among them, it says. It doesn't say only these. It says among them. And by the way, it's that concern for identifying important rights that caused our country's founders to later add the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. We're not going to get down that road, but that's important that it's, we have these rights that came from God. Now, here's the next part that I really want to emphasize. We have certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's an exact quote. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So, follow along, make sure you understand this. God gives us, because we are people, certain rights that no one can take away. They are gifts from God no one can take away. We have a brief description of them here, and then the Declaration says that to secure these rights, these rights that were given to us by God himself, governments are instituted among men. So the reason we in this country formed a government was because we wanted the government to secure our rights. Very important. We didn't form government for any other purpose than to secure our rights. That to secure these rights, the Declaration says and continues, governments are instituted among men. Our rights come from God. No one can take them away. Government is responsible for securing those rights to make sure no one takes them away. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of who you elect to office in your town, your city, your county, your state. Are you and have you elected men and women who make it their primary purpose as their elected responsibilities to secure the rights of the people? Because that's the reason we have government. So I'm convinced their primary responsibility is to make sure that your rights are secured. So when you look at candidates, when you look at people who are already holding office and asking for re-election, when you look at the whole spectrum of things, a primary, maybe the most important thing you're looking for is, will they secure the rights that God has given you? And if they take actions to take away your rights, to infringe upon your rights, to limit your rights in a way that's not necessary, then that should be a signal to you that there's a problem. Their primary job is to secure the rights of the people. So let's pick that up and then finish this first part of the, of the um, declaration that I wanted to call your attention to. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's also a very important concept in American government. The people we elect don't just have decision-making responsibility or decision-making power. No, they are elected to manage the government in a way that secures our rights, because our rights came from God and no one can take them away, and their job is to make sure no one takes them away, and they get their 
decision-making responsibility, their powers of office from the consent of the governed. They only have authority to act as we, the governed, have given them that authority to act. Very important concept. So foundational to your evaluation of candidates should be to ask these questions. Do they believe that our rights come from God? If they don't believe that, then they're going to usurp the power to take those rights away when given an opportunity or when temp temptation arises. So do they believe that our rights come from God? Do they believe that because those rights come from God, no one can take them away, including themselves if they're elected? Do they believe that their primary responsibility as an elected office holder is to secure those rights? And do they believe that the only reason they're in office is because we, the people, we, the governed, have agreed to let them conduct those responsibilities according to the principles of law and the Constitution in particular that we've set up? That's important understanding, and that's, that's so important because that's what our founders had in mind. That's what they were concerned about when they formed the country. Now, that's all important, but there's another statement that John Adams made, and I think that this, because of what the, the founders said in the Declaration, this statement that he makes is so important for us today to realize. Here's what John Adams said, and I quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I'm going to read that again so we all get it. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Notice that he said, our Constitution, our form of government, requires a moral and religious people. Now, a lot of people are concerned, and rightfully so, from time to time. It crops up in big ways and sometimes in smaller ways, always in important ways, a concern for the condition of our government. Well, I think the way we fix that problem, if you will, I think the way we fix the problems we wrestle with in terms of government, and we will always have those wrestlings because we are always people with different ideas, but the way we fix that fundamentally is that we need a moral and religious people. I do not believe we can have a country that secures the rights that God has given us, that operates on the basis of the consent of the governed unless we are a moral and religious people. It's why I argue and have argued and will argue again that the only, the only repair to our nation's problems or our city's problems or our county's problems or our state's problems, the only foundational basis for repair is for people to be a moral and religious people. In other words, we need to know right from wrong and we need to have devotion to God. That's where it starts. And you should expect that out of the people that run for office in your area. Well, that's just a little bit of a, of a reminder of the importance of, of July 4th, the importance of Independence Day, because we need to, to celebrate that God has given us a great nation and a great gift in liberty. And we don't want to take that for granted, and we need to understand it, and we need to preserve it. And we need people who will run for office and then who will take office and who will understand they serve 
by our consent and their primary responsibility is to secure our rights. Well, I guess we could talk about that for a long time, but I don't want to make that the whole focus of the program today. I just think that's important for us because it really calls to us as the people of God and the church to step up and to work real hard to help people understand the foundation of our government and the basis for our understanding of government and that it requires a moral and religious people, people who know right from wrong and who have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, let's turn now to that challenge that I hinted at at the beginning of the program, what kind of people are we, and my hope and confidence that that we have good people listening. And I thank you for listening. And, and I want us to, to now turn our attention to a parable that I have liked for a long time and like a lot. And we could talk about this for a lot longer than we have today, but we're going to try to, to focus on some important concepts from the parable that we usually call the parable of the Good Samaritan. We find that in Luke chapter 10. That's where I want to read it from today. And it tells the story with a very important point, and we need to understand it. So I'm going to read from the Contemporary English Bible. That's a good one. Or I'm sorry, I said contemporary. It's common English Bible. There is a contemporary English version, I think it's called out there. This is the common English Bible. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, and, and read not quite to the end of the chapter. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, that's just a terrific story. Don't you think so? I love that story. It's a great story. I, I was really, really pleased when I went on my one trip to Israel, the, 
the leader of the tour, he actually called it a pilgrimage, and it really was that. One day they took us to a, a really unusual place, and I wasn't quite sure why we were going there. We got out as a very barren area. Turned out we were at the top of a hill, uh, uh, not a sharp drop off below, but there was a slope that was going down toward a valley that we could see. And we walked over on the hill. We had to walk rather carefully because, well, because it was odd in a way that I've rarely encountered, but the, the ground was barren. It was hard packed and it was covered with small rocks or pebbles. And because of that, those rocks, those little pebbles would roll as you took a step. And so you immediately could tell that it was a very rather slippery area. And yet we had to get to where we could see down into this valley because it was quite a distance down. And, and I, I began to wonder what would anybody be kind of careless and maybe try to get too close to, to the edge. There wasn't really an edge. It was just gently sloping down, but, but you could definitely tell that if you got out too far and, and you encountered this slippery surface, which was everywhere, you couldn't miss it. Then it would not have taken much for, for your feet to go out from under you as though you were standing on an icy surface. And then you would be able to grab nothing. You would slide down that a long distance to the valley below. Well, that was really unusual, but then they explained the reason they had taken us there. It felt really odd, but they pointed out that down in the valley, we could see a path. And this, they explained, was the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as they began to explain, they pointed out how the path was not wide and no one could have missed a man who had been badly beaten, as the story describes. And everyone that heard Jesus tell the story would have understood that it would have taken some effort to get around the injured man and go on your way. So there was no excuse that they didn't see the man or any other plausible explanation for them to fail to render aid. And it was very interesting, based on that geography, how difficult it would have been for them to get around the man. They would have had to go down and up the other side and then rack around and across and up to get back on the path. It was very interesting that way. So understanding this setting, we go back to the story that Jesus told and, and the challenge that was issued to Jesus by this expert in Jewish law was, what must I do to gain eternal life? Boy, there's a question for you. That's a question, isn't it? That's the question of the hour. What must I do to gain eternal life? Or we often say today, what must I do to be saved? This man put it very specifically, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? Now, I want to point out before we get too deep into this, that this gentleman asked a very important question. Uh, we wonder a little bit, what did he mean by that? Because they didn't have the same sense of, of what we do today about this idea of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? But they did have the same concern for this concept of eternal life. And it, it wasn't an unusual question, particularly. Some commentators have said it was a standard question in those days. 
but at the same time, they didn't have the same understanding because many Jewish people, probably including this gentleman who is an expert in Jewish law, they thought eternal destiny was based more on their bloodline or their good deeds. In other words, the fact that they were Jewish, that they were part of the covenant people, and that they were doing the right thing, that was what brought about eternal life. Now, what I think we need to notice about this is that it's a question for the ages. It's a timeless question. But we also should ask that he did not ask, or we should notice, he did not ask, what must I believe? He asked, what must I do? And we should notice that Jesus didn't say anything about believing. He didn't say, well, you need to believe these four or five things. He didn't say, well, you have to have faith. He didn't say, you just got to believe, brother, you just got to believe. Some of those are the kinds of answers we give today, but it's very interesting that Jesus didn't give that kind of answer, and he didn't rebuke the man. He did not rebuke the man for asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Instead, Jesus practiced a standard rabbinic answer of that day when he responded with a question, what is written in the law? And he asked the man, how do you interpret it? That's a question and answer kind of that would have gone on in those days. And so that wasn't really unusual. But it's very important to notice that that Jesus did not change the man's question when he said, what must I do? Today, we get real nervous about the do when it comes to Christian faith. We get real nervous about, well, we can't have any kind of works religion. But it's real interesting, and we should take serious note that Jesus did not challenge this man's understanding about the concept of doing something to inherit eternal life. He simply asked the man, well, how do you understand it? You're an expert in the law. Explain it to us. And the man quoted him some scripture, both from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. Here's what the man said, according to the version I read, the Common English Bible. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's some pretty specific things in terms of how we relate to God. Essentially, it means that we're to love God with the totality of our being. It, it's not meant to be those specific things necessarily, as much as it's a summary description that all that we are, we should expend toward loving God. So it's very important, two concepts, love God with all you've got and love your neighbor. That's what he said. Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Very common response for us today when we ask, how would Jesus sum up the law? Well, Jesus agreed that that was the right thing, and he said, do this and you will live. So I want us to think about this from this perspective. A lot of times when somebody says to us, what must I do to be saved, or what must I do to inherit eternal life, we turn to something that we often call the sinner's prayer. That's not my purpose here to denigrate the sinner's prayer. It is my purpose to say, wait a minute, Jesus didn't answer that way. You see, maybe, maybe we should realize that 
salvation isn't so formulaic as a prayer like we sometimes think it is. Maybe it's more about doing what the man said, loving God and loving our neighbor. Maybe that's the formula. If you were look for a formula, it certainly is what we are called to do. It's certainly what we must do, love God and love our neighbor. So as you think about that, think about, do you tend to rely on the fact that you believe certain truths from the Bible, and it doesn't matter so much how you respond to God and what you do towards God or to demonstrate faithfulness to God? Have you tended to think that if you just believe the right things about the right things, that really how you treat your neighbors isn't quite so important? But here we get a very strong statement from Jesus that it's how we express our love for God and how we express our love for our neighbors that really points out whether we are going to inherit eternal life. And I think we need to think about that and process that a little bit because it's different than we usually think. We're usually so afraid, oh, salvation can't be earned. I agree with that. But it doesn't say salvation is totally devoid of or there's no connection to what we do. Jesus clearly says it matters what you do. It matters if you love God with the totality of your being. It matters if you love your neighbor as yourself. So let's think about that for a few minutes. We're going to take a break in just a moment. We're going to come back to this parable. There's a lot more to think about, and there's a lot more stretch that Jesus has for us. And because you're good people and you're listening, we're going to stretch in God's direction and learn it together. I'll be back in just a minute. It's summertime. Ready for your vacation to the beach, the lake, or the mountains? But what about your accommodations? Ever wonder what germs were left behind by the previous guests? Kathy G. from Tulsa says the Genesis Fogger gives her peace of mind and confidence when traveling. With Genesis, she knows that the air and surfaces in her vacation rental are free of bacteria and viruses left behind by the previous occupants. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming, from world and political news to societal and cultural stories. Six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 120 times per month. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost. 
an immune supplement that contains full effective doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day, pill-free, ultra-absorption ingestible gel. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off any order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code AMERICA50 for 50% off. Welcome back. We are stretching ourselves in God's truth direction here on Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm so glad you've joined us. We've been talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan and trying to begin to understand that, and we're going to do that a little bit more. Before we go any farther, I'd like to ask a couple things of you. One is, if you're concerned about what you're hearing news-wise and otherwise, I want to encourage you to tune into the other programs here on America Out Loud. I believe that we have a lot of people here that are concerned with helping you get the straight story out there. And I believe there's a lot of them you can trust. Just so you will know, I have never been pressured by anybody here at America Out Loud to tell you certain things, to say certain things, or to not say certain things. They really are committed to helping us all understand that which is true. So check out some of the other programs. I think you may find some useful things there if you haven't done that already. And the second thing, if you find value in this program, Faith Is, and any of the other ones, would you encourage your friends to listen? You can get this program by podcast, any place you get podcasts. It's an easy process. You subscribe to it, no cost for subscribing, but it's just an opportunity for you to hear what's going on and for your friends to know what's going on. And we want to help people, particularly here, keep the sacred story straight. So thanks for your consideration of that. Now let's talk about the Good Samaritan. We've been talking about how Jesus did not challenge his question, but instead answered it straight up. And the man answered right by saying, the way to eternal life, the way to inherit eternal life is to love God with all you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that was a correct answer. So we need to think about what was going on now in the man's mind, because he then said, well, who is my neighbor? And it's clear from the way the text tells us this, that he was trying to justify himself. So when, whenever, and some, some English translations actually use that phrase, he was trying to justify himself. So whenever somebody's trying to justify themselves, it makes us think about now what's going on. Could it be that he realized when he made that statement that there was something in his life that needed to change and he didn't want to change? You see, one of the important understandings of following Jesus is the concept of change your life. It's not just about believing something. It's about changing your life. In fact, if your life doesn't change, it points out you really don't have a very robust understanding of what it means to believe. Because if you believe something, you act on it and you do something about it. Now, probably what this man was trying to do was to show that he was in compliance with God's law, because after all, he was an expert in the law. And if he knew that what he knew, and he knew enough to answer correctly, you wonder why he needed to attempt to justify himself. Um, maybe, and this is probably what was going on based upon the way Jesus asked, maybe his question, who is my neighbor, was an attempt to limit his obligation. Maybe he wanted to have some carefully set boundaries around that. We think that the religious people of that day thought that their neighbor were 
were the other people that were in the covenant, other Jewish people, or they sometimes referred to those people as the righteous. And, and often that's the way they would have thought of that Jewish teachers of that day. So it could be that's what he had in mind. But Jesus, to answer the question, told the parable about the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, it's about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is downhill. It's a descent in altitude. And along that road, there are many places that robbers can hide. And it was known as a dangerous area for robbers. So this man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is attacked by the robbers who leave him for dead. They take all of his stuff, including his clothing. Wasn't unusual for them to take clothing in that day. It was considered much more valuable than ours is because it wasn't as easy to obtain. In other words, they left him like a corpse on the battlefield. They left him for dead. So here's this guy, helpless, cannot survive without help. And a priest goes down the road, saw him, passes on the other side. The text doesn't give us any reason why the priest didn't stop. It just tells us that he didn't. It's possible. And some people have tried to explain this. And, and it may be the reason. We just don't know that the priest was concerned with being defiled because there was a concept of uncleanness. And if the man had actually been dead, then the priest going over to touch him would have been ritually unclean. And maybe he didn't think he should be ritually unclean. Although if he was going, and, and he was, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it wasn't a question of disqualifying him for temple service. But anyway, he whatever the reason, he passed on by. A priest was a descendant of Aaron, served in the temple, and then a Levite comes along. A Levite also served in the temple. They were more like assistants, temple assistants. They were not in the priestly line because they weren't descendants of Aaron, they were descendants of Levi. But this Levite also saw the man pass by on the other side. Same exact behavior from two very religious people who you would have expected to know what to do and how to do it in terms of responding to someone in need like that. But they passed by, no explanation. Jesus didn't offer to explain why they did it either. But then a Samaritan came down, and he saw the man and had compassion for the man. He cleaned him up, bandaged his wounds, put him on his own animal, and took him to an inn to take care of him. Now, it's very striking, and it's not so striking for us because we didn't live in that context. But Jesus' listeners would have found it enormously unsettling to hear that a Samaritan had responded to this man when the priest and the Levite did not. They would not have expected a Samaritan. There was, a, there was friction between them and the Samaritans. But this Samaritan took on the role of a servant, cleaned the man up, took care of his wounds, put him on his own animal, and then led the animal down. He took the, the role of a servant. A servant was the one who would lead an animal, and the, and the master would sit on the animal. But the Samaritan thought nothing of that. He did the right thing took him to the innkeeper. Then he gave the innkeeper two days wages to take care of him, payment in advance. It was a way for him to care for the man's needs, but it was also a way for him to say to the innkeeper, look, I'll reimburse you if you need more. So when he paid him and then when he promised more help later, the innkeeper would have confidence in that and take care of him. Now it was two days pay, but it was probably as best we can tell, enough 
money to pay for the innkeeper to care for the man for about two months. And so he had this promise for more and he had the incentive to care for him. And we have the shocking realization that a Samaritan would have cared for this man when the other two did not. And then Jesus comes along with the question, which of these three was a neighbor to the victim of the attack? Which of these three, the, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor to him? Now, we know that the, the expert in Jewish law answered and said, of course, it was, it was the Samaritan. But think about how Jesus reversed the question. Think about how Jesus reversed the question. The, the expert in the law asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, by the way he told the story and framed his question, which of the three was a neighbor to him, reversed the concept. And essentially, Jesus says, don't think about who your neighbor might be. Don't think about who they are. Think about who you are. Because the point is, Will you act as a neighbor to someone who needs your help? Well, the expert was right. He had it very well down that the right decision was made and the, and the right understanding of neighbor was embodied by the Samaritan's behavior. And Jesus said, go and do the same. In other words, the answer to the man's question about eternal life was summed up in the Shema and then in the behavior of loving God and neighbor, and especially as the man was concerned about his neighbor, behaved the way the Samaritan did. Now, it was surprising enough to a Jewish audience that a Samaritan would be the hero of the story, so to speak. There's a little bit more surprise to that than what we sometimes think about. Now, remember, when Jesus said, how do you understand the law? as it relates to eternal life, the man said, love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yes, you understand that very well. You've got it. Now, what Jesus didn't say, but what they would have known and what we know is that when the man recited those scripture passages, he was reciting what's called the Shema. That was a statement, a creed, a prayer. you can call it all of those things. It was all of those things. That was a statement that all faithful Jewish men would have recited or prayed or declared, however you want to think of it. They would have recited that statement twice a day, morning and evening. So the man answered Jesus' question correctly when he said, how do you understand the law as it relates to eternal life? And, and Jesus that said, that's right. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've got that right. He commended him for that. So think about the challenge now when the two men who passed by on the other side, who did not render aid to the victim of the attack, the two men were faithful Jews who would have recited that prayer, that creed, that statement twice a day, every day. Those two men who lived, you would have thought, by their reciting that statement, by that statement, and who Jesus commended in the, in the religious expert, in his 
statement, you would have thought they should be the ones to render aid. But here it was a Samaritan. A Samaritan lived up to the words of the expert in the law when the priest and the Levite did not. That's a really shocking, shocking discovery. Now, many years ago, I heard a man give a sermon on this very story, the Good Samaritan. It was, it was many years ago. Oh, it was more than 30 years ago, but I remember it to this day. And I want to give credit to him. His name was Derek Johnson. You may know him more as a musician. He is a musician. He founded and led a group called Regeneration, and later he worked at Disney World with the Voices of Liberty. He still conducts a choir, the Voices of Life. I listened to their program Sunday evening. Well, Derek Johnson was also an accomplished preacher, and he came to where I was living, and he spoke one evening, several evenings, but the one evening that I remember about the story of the Good Samaritan. And he challenged us in a way that I want to challenge you, because Jesus reversing that question and saying, don't think about who your neighbor might be, think about who you are, what kind of person are you, crystallizes this for us. So let's talk about what kind of people were in the story, and give credit to Pastor Derek Johnson for these ideas. Think about the thief. What was the attitude of the thief? Well, the attitude of the thief was simple. What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. Well, that's what they did to the victim. They attacked him and took his stuff. What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. Now, we're not that kind of people, are we? We're not the kind of people that look at somebody else's stuff and say, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. And we certainly don't tolerate other people that do that. We're not thieves. Well, good. I'm glad we're not, because we don't believe what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. But now let's think about the attitude of the priest and the Levite. They come down the road, they see the man there in, in dire need, half dead, and they look at the situation and they think, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. They pass by on the other side. How many of us? are tempted to take that attitude. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. What about generosity? You ever think about that? What about when you're challenged and somebody could use your help? And it doesn't have to be money. It could be other kinds of assistance. What's mine, my time, my knowledge, my ability, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. You know, the good news is, or, or what's, sorry, I got ahead of myself. The, the, the bad news is a lot of people in the world today take that attitude of what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. They don't want to share. They think they worked hard for it. It's theirs. They're going to keep it. But along comes the Samaritan. And I know where you're going now. You've already figured this out. Along comes the Samaritan and he says, what's mine is yours and I'll share it. Now, except for the words of the scriptures and the words that Jesus commended, there's no incentive for the Samaritan. Except for loving God and loving his neighbor, what's the incentive? What's he going to get out of this? Uh, as near as I can tell, nothing. But the Samaritan's response said, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. And he did. He used his resources to help the man survive a terrible attack. 
What's mine is yours, and I'll share it. Now, the really good news is that I think a lot of people in, that I've known, and, and I would be real surprised if it weren't true, because I'm convinced a lot of you listening today are the kind of people that would say, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. You help your neighbors, people from time to time, anywhere from the simple things like you might hold a door for somebody who's struggling with uh, a couple of kids or whatever, and they need just a little assistance, you hold the door or you let them go first, or you, you take their shopping cart from the parking lot to the, where they place the carts. You do little things like that all the time because you recognize that what's yours is theirs and you'll share it. it. Might be a little time, it might be a little energy, might be a little inconvenience. I'm pretty sure a whole bunch of us recognize that sometimes people just need a little hand up. And so we donate to this or to that that helps people when they need it. Our church every month, we invite ourselves and take advantage of the opportunity to contribute to what we call a love cares fund. And we use that fund to help people when they need a little help. And we do that just because we have the means. And so what's mine is yours and I'll share it. And we do that. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you do. The real rub comes when we don't want to. The real rub comes when, well, I'm not sure I like that person or whatever. And that's when we really have to stretch and challenge ourselves. We really have to realize that that how we live out this idea of faithfulness to God really matters. You see, what, what he was saying here was what another person that I read, a man named Manson, said, love does not begin by defining its objects, it discovers them. You see, that's what the Samaritan did. He didn't define who his neighbor was. He discovered, here's my neighbor, needs my help. Manson went on to say, while mere neighborhood does not create love, love does create neighborhood. That's a really important concept, and that's what's going on here with the, with the Samaritan. What's mine is yours, and I'll share it. He wasn't a thief. He didn't say, what's yours is mine, and I'll take it. That's a thief every time. Or maybe it's a little bit better, and a whole lot of people go down this road. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. Who do you think you are expecting anything from me? Uh, that's pretty worrisome attitude there. No, we want to be like the Samaritan. What's mine is yours, and I'll share it. So really, that defines the essence of who we are, doesn't it? Isn't a sense of neighbor and neighborliness defined by the commands that Jesus gave? Doesn't that define what kind of people we are? So can't we answer the question I started out the program with? What kind of people are we by saying we're the kind of people like the Good Samaritan? It's also interesting to notice in this story that here Jesus told this story, and, and to Jesus in this moment, mercy was more important than holiness or cleanliness. You know, it's possible, and we mentioned that, that the priest and the Levite were concerned about being defiled, but Jesus said mercy is more significant than being defiled. We cannot say to God, I met my obligation, I can quit now. That's what people send, tend to do when they say, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. Nowhere in the Bible does it give us the opportunity to say, okay, I've done mine, I'm finished. 
Oh, the Bible keeps stretching us to love God with all we've got and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, you've probably gotten the idea, and I want to circle back to this before we finish, that the parable is all about the idea of action. And we get really caught up in the idea of belief. You got to believe the right things. And there are some things that we need to believe. There are some things that are true that we need to accept. But I really believe we have overlooked the concept of action as it comes to salvation. God has called us to put our faith into action, to demonstrate our confidence in him by loving him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. We can't get away from that because that's true in the way Luke tells the story. It's true in the whole of Scripture. And we get really concerned about the idea that, well, we can't earn our salvation. Well, we can't. It's clear from the Bible that it's a gift. But how do you respond to a gift? You see, in ancient times, a gift was often considered a grace or a grace gift, a kindness of the giver. In his kindness, God has offered us eternal life. And then the question is, now what do I do? That's what the man was asking Jesus. He was asking him, what must I do? And Jesus said, here's the next step. In this parable, we get the next step. Receive the grace gift of God. Receive eternal life. It's a gift of grace. And in ancient times, they had a concept. They understood this idea of being given a gift of grace. And then the person who received that gift of grace was expected to reciprocate and respond to that by doing things that demonstrated he had made good use of that gift of grace. So we demonstrate that we're making good use of the gift of God's grace when we love God with all we've got and when we love our neighbors as ourselves. So we could never take the attitude of the thief, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. No, we were given a gift. How could we ever take something from somebody else? We would never want to have the attitude of the priest and the Levite what's mine is mine and I'll keep it, because we were given this gift of grace that we didn't deserve or earn. How could I ever keep it? I need to live a life in response to that gift of grace that shares it so that I'm like the Samaritan in the story. What's mine is yours, and I'll share it. Very important for us to understand that. Now, we're not trying to be moralistic or preachy or anything like that. That's not the point. But the point is this, why should we bother to learn the lessons from Jesus if it's not going to make any difference in our lives? Why should we tell the stories of Jesus if we don't expect people to live differently? Why would God, and this is really a tough one to think about. Why would God give us the gift of grace, the gift of salvation, if we're not going to change our lives and follow him? It's not so much cause and effect as much as recognition of a gift and responding rightly to that gift. See, that's what, that's what God calls us to do. And that's why we talk about here on this program that we want to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. 
Because when we live lives that say, what's mine is yours and I'll share it, we're demonstrating that we trust God to provide for us because we have a source of supply that we don't have to worry about. We can trust God when we live out his principles. And we also recognize that if we're not willing to live out his principles, we haven't really committed our life to him. We haven't really pledged our allegiance to him. And foundational to the invitation of Jesus is that he calls us to accept his gift of grace, to change our lives and follow him. That's what he's telling the man here. Yes, you know about all of the right things. Now receive the gift of grace and live a life that demonstrates that that gift has been well-received and put into practice. Wouldn't the world be a whole lot better place if we had everybody who had the attitude, what's mine is yours and I'll share it? It's a terrible place when we live in a world, what's yours is mine and I'll take it, or what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. So what kind of people are we? We're the kind of people that share what God has given us. And I hope you'll do that this week in small ways, in big ways, in whatever ways God leads you to. You be a good Samaritan to your neighbors and say to them in what you do, what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. And I'll share with you again next week. Thank you.